Hello there. Welcome to Oscar's podcast. I am your host, Oscar Velasco. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, today's topic, we're going to talk about the school to prison pipeline. So looking at how schools uh, criminalize youth and youth of color, um, looking at the social policies, we're going to look at mass incarceration, just how the war uh, on drugs affected the black, the black community, just the lifetime um, just the lifetime increase um, incarceration has for an African-American man um, and a Latino male, um, as well as looking um, as um, the suspension and expulsion rates here in California and comparing to other states, um, and just the vulnerabilities towards incarceration for young people who's pushed out of the education system. We're gonna look at um, the interviews that I had with two educators too, while researching this project and you know we're going to talk about man what are some solutions out there that we can um reform our criminal our criminal justice systems towards juveniles so this project was definitely important to me um because it made me reflect and made me think about my own community being a young latino in a predominantly um uh, uh, latino community I definitely saw more men in my life um, end up incarcerated than going to college. I saw that there wasn't a lot of opportunities for males of color. Um, I saw that there's, yeah, very few or little room to make mistakes. Um, Living in a high crime rate neighborhood, just seeing and remembering people in my community being stopped and frisked. Just teachers looking looking at us as deficits and just there's just tremendous obstacles um, just to overcome just for for a person um, who came to my community to go off to college so man like I wanted to, to talk about this I wanted to bring awareness to this I wanted to create a dialogue where we can talk about this because many people who didn't grow up in the right neighborhood um, in the right families, in the right communities, with the right resources, didn't get those opportunities to go out to college. Um, like many people who came from middle class, who came from um, upper class, who came from um, predominantly white or Anglo um, n- neighborhoods, um, who grew up in the suburbs. So there's, there was definitely different challenges growing up in an urban um an urban community. So yeah, that's something that we're going to talk about and discuss. Before we talk about the school to prison pipeline, I just want to give credit where credit is due. This project was inspired by civil, uh, Chicano civil rights activist and co-founder of the United Farm Workers Union, Dolores Huerta, who spoke at Cal Poly in April 2008. Um, I remember um, hearing her speak and asking her a question um, during a Q&A session. And my question was, how can you bring awareness to this issue? And um, I don't know, I, I forgot the answer she gave me, but I think, I think it was something very similar that I had to care about it. And I remember leaving, um, just leaving that speech knowing that I wanted to learn more about it. And I wanted to learn more about the, um, incarceration culture in America, more about just 
um, yeah, the criminal justice system and how our school is criminalizing youth and youth of color. So um, she was definitely the inspiration behind this project. Also another inspiration was Dr. Victor Rios, uh, who is doing research on this project and actually teaches restorative justice approaches in, um, in the education system. His, song, his story is very just inspirational, um, just re really real, uh, gave me a realization there's not a, a lot of um, men of color who are in higher education, and predominantly it's because those, um, the social punitives were heavily targeted towards black and Latino males in urban and inner city communities. Um, I want to give a big thank you to Dr. Andrea Arnate for guiding me and being my senior advisor. Uh, for this project. Um, so thank you so much for the tremendous help, um, the people behind this project who were an inspiration to me and me and actually encouraged me to be a change maker um, and, and wanting to do research and prevent and preventable work and in the criminal justice system. So um, before we talk, uh, talk about mass incarceration, we are going to take quick short minute break um, but stick around we'll be right back welcome back I hope you enjoyed that song that song is called Letters to the Free by Common who uh, is an artist that actually raps about mass incarceration so if you enjoy that I highly recommend looking it up on Spotify or Apple Music um, but that's actually our next discussion that we're going to talk about is mass incarceration here in the United States so there was a study done by the Sensing Project on how the U.S. leads the world um, per international rates of incarceration per capita, and it found they found that six hundred uh, six hundred and seventy people out of every hundred um, thousand people here in the United States are incarcerated behind bars or under correctional uh, surveillance, and the countries that um, came behind the um, the United States was Rwanda, who comes in second place. Russia comes in third place, Brazil, who comes in fourth, and Australia, who comes in fifth. Yet, the United States is one of the most industrialized, one of the most um, capitalized countries in the world, yet we still lead the world by the most uh, incarceration rates um, out of any country. And one of, one of the policies, or some of the policies that created mass incarceration came out of the 1980s and 1990s, such as uh, Ronald Reagan's approach on the war on drugs that targeted um, drug offenders and um, yeah, and created this tough on crime ideology where we began criminalizing and demonizing drug users um, instead of treating drugs, um, your drug problem as a mental health issue. We treated it more of a crime issue and we increased punishment um, by introducing mandatory sentencing, three strikes you're out, um, longer prison sentence. And what's crazy, too, is that the, the time these laws were introduced, globalization was affecting the economy. So in the 1970s and 1980s, the United States experienced a crisis in the economy. Man, we were going through inflation. The, um, the 1980s, um, the country was going through a recession at the time. And U.S. Uh, manufacturing companies actually left uh, the United States to get away from... Um, just like government regulations on, on productions. Um, and they thought, U.S. manufacturers thought it would be cheaper to move jobs overseas to export ch uh, cheap labor 
and for cheap and cheaper wages. At the same time, we're the country, the government, the U.S. federal government was using massive cuts on federal spending and social welfare. Um, so, man, we had massive cuts on social welfare. Uh, U.S. companies moved over overshore, and this affected the African American populations um, in cities like Detroit, Cleveland, and Chicago, where there was high levels of unemployment. Um, there were some of the most industrialized um, cities as well, where manufactured jobs were leaving overseas, and this created um, and contributed to unemployment rate, poverty, and it left so many people desperate to find a secure income to feed families, um, to contribute to, yeah, putting food on the table, um, putting clothes on their, um, on, on their children's back, um, yeah, being able to pay the bills. That so many people created underground economies and it left people desperate towards criminal activity because the U.S. government cut social programs, social welfare programs, didn't invest in jobs, but just how the uh, I, I believe politicians and lawmakers at the time failed to consider how globalization was affecting the U.S. economy while they were introducing these um, these bills. And man, it created like a racial disparity. Um, again, the sentencing project revealed that more than 60 people in prisons today are people of color. Um, black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men. And Hispanics men are 2.7 times more, more as likely to be incarcerated. We now also see the economical and social consequences of um, the U.S. leading in mass incarceration. So according to the National Institute of Justice, they found that the, uh, the fixed cost rate of building a, a prison ranges from 60000 to 7000 and that's just per inmate alone. And the average day it costs to keep someone behind bars is $60, is $60 per day. Annually, that's $22,000. And previous research um, has shown two basic ways that how mass incarceration can affect the headcount of the poverty rate. Um, one way it does this is actually um, it removes people who are incarcerated out of the uh, consensus of counting the U.S. Um, poverty rate here in America. But it also removes um, people who can um, become primary earners uh, to low-income families as well. So, yeah, we spend more money to keep someone behind bars and we don't uh, consider them in the census of the poverty rate here in the United States. Also, what was just really, I think, shocking to hear, I think to even find out was the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment um, for residents born in 2001. Um, and now um, black men have a chance, uh, have a one, one in three chances of facing incarceration throughout their lifetime. For Latino men, it's one in six. For white men, it's one in 17. But for all men, it's one in nine. So that's just crazy. Um, man, that the racial disparities like heavily target and put black and Latino m men behind bars. Um, so there's a book I read called The New Jim Crow, Mass, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by um, author Michelle Alexander. And in her book, I found that convictions for drug offenses are the single most causes for the explore, um, explore, exploration in incarceration rates in the United States.
Um, I also found that that drug offenses alone account for two-thirds of the rise of federal inmate population from 1985 to 2000. And approximately over half a million people in prisons um, and jails today for, are locked behind bars for a drug offense. And that was, that's compared to 41,000 in early 1980s. So that's an increase in 1,100% um, incarceration. Next, we, we just see a big prison population um, that the U.S. Uh, um, government has. So we know that the United States is the world leader in incarceration with 2.2 million people currently in the nation's prisons and jails. Um, the Census Project revealed that that's a 500 increase over the last 40 years. We found out that more people um, up in prisons today are people of color. And we found out that research shows that one out of three African-Americans will face incarceration rates through a lifetime. One in six Latino men will face incarceration throughout their lifetime. And most of these, uh, m- most of the uh, people behind bars are behind bars for drug offenses because of the 1980s, 1990s legislations. So that's just kind of an intro of mass incarceration. But to, next, we're going to talk about the school to prison pipeline. So how schools began criminalizing and targeting youth and youth of color and, and how they did so. And one of the ways they did so is, was by implementing zero tolerance policies. So to really discuss it, we got to discuss the, the 1994 Federal Gun-Free School Act. So this act that was passed um, in 1994 by U.S. Congress, U.S. Congress and signed by President Bill Clinton required that this act, um, so this act required that a one-year mandatory expulsion for bringing a poss- or possessing a firearm at a school. Um, it was required that offending students would be referred to the juvenile uh, justice systems, um, and schools were forced to comply or risk losing federal funding. So um, this encouraged uh, school districts, um, teachers across the country to adopt zero tolerance policies. And um, ever since the act was was passed and implemented, we see a rise in expulsion, suspension, and a rise in um, incarceration for juveniles. So um, I found that the National Center for Education Statistics um, discovered that after, after that act was passed, the school year of 1996 to 1997, 91% of schools um, implemented zero-tolerance policies um, for offenses other than firearms. So this meant like um, for bringing drugs and alcohol to school, for getting to fight, for being tardy, for talking back, for not sitting down when being told. And what's crazy to to consider is that studies have shown that school suspension and expulsions are associated with a high, higher likelihood of, of school dropout or failure to uh, graduate on time. So research, man, research has shown that these policies have failed. It's a failed youth and youth of color. It's cheated people out of getting a fair education. Um, the American Academy of, of Patriotics also found that suspension and expulsions not only jeopardizes uh, children's health and safety, but man, it exhibits to academic failure as well. Um, kids are, students are discouraged after being suspended and being expelled. 
and lose motivation for being um for just trying to be back in schools and it places a stigma um and many teachers look at students as deficits uh, it was crazy to to find here in california the states where where i live um there's a study done by the black male institute at ucla we found that the united states still incarcerates over 54,000 youth a year and that's uh, a disproportion of them are black and latino males um also in 2013 the academy youth uh, authority reached an astounding high of 20 uh, 225,000 uh, um per person to incarcerate youth so we saw that latino and youth were caught um and targeted we saw them fall into the pipeline they were referred more to the juvenile um uh, court system and in Los Angeles, which is one of the um, one of the biggest and most populated cities in, in the country, it's over. It's home to over ten million people, covering four thousand and eighty three acres. Um, we found that Latino and and Black males represent two of the largest subgroups in that country. The, so, covering two point three million in that county alone of Los Angeles, um, and. The Black Male Institute at UCLA discovered that one in three Black and Latino males live in poverty today, and that represents two of the highest um, rate of any youth group. We also found that Black and Latino males have the lowest graduation rates of any subgroup in that county, so in the county of, of Los Angeles. Man. Um, and to as, as we're on the topic of school suspension we got to talk about the school suspension here in california man we so while doing this research project i found that what well, um african americans account for only five percent 5.8 of, of the state public school enrollment they represent 17.8 of students who are suspended in the state and they represent 14.1 of those expelled um, just uh, two years ago, um, in the school year 2016 and 2017, um, just that school year alone, there was a total of 186 suspensions and two expulsions of black students per day. That's just per day alone. Uh, the California Department of Education um, data indicated that black uh, boys and men account for 71.3 of all black suspensions and 73.2 of black expulsions. So kids are kids are, are kicked, mostly um, young black men, are kicked out of the education system. They're less vulnerable to uh, police brutality, police harassment, and incarceration. Um, so comparing to from California to the state of Virginia, I also discovered um, that the, and this was re revealed by the U.S. Department of Education, that Virginia schools in a single in a single year referred students to law enforcement agencies at a rate nearly three times the national rate, um, and Virginia referral rate is about sixteen for every thousand students. Um, we found that uh, um, black students were the highest rate, and coming behind them were Hispanic students. And um, one example I can think of when I was researching this project was. Um, in so southwestern Virginia, a twelve-year-old a twelve-year-old girl was charged for a misdemeanor, um, including obstruction obstruction of justice for clenching her fist at a police officer. So, 
just think that just for cleaning her fist, it's just shocking. And this study was found by the Center of Public Integrity that was published in 2015 by Susan Ferris. Um, yeah, so, man, uh, expulsion and uh, suspension leaves just many rooms towards uh, and increases the likelihood of students and predominantly students of color um, it leaves them vulnerable to incarceration. Um, I discovered that young people who are caught in the pipeline and the in the pipeline and into the juvenile court system share a number of just vulnerabilities. The first is that children and adolescents who are poor usually involve families of color, um, so, such as African Americans, Hispanics, and Native Americans, are the most um, likely of, of being referred to the criminal justice system. Um, and the the use of certain like security measures with schools such as cameras, metal detectors, security guards, school uh just school official uh resources officers, um, were commonly more found in urban inner city environments, and neighborhoods that struggle more with poverty, than with suburban middle and upper class um environments, and this um this was founded uh in. Um, scholar Christopher A. Millett in her book, um, The School to Prison Pipeline, Disproportionate Impact on Vulnerable Children and Adolescents. Um, also, one thing we got to talk about is children in adult prisons. Um, so I found this uh, while researching in the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, reported that over the last 20 years, very young children have been prosecuted um, as adults in increasing numbers and were subjected subjected to by very harsh adult sentence. Um, I also found that um, the Equal Justice Initiative also found that ninety five thousand uh, children are housed in adult jails and prisons each year. And what that does to a child being sent to an adult prison is children who are sent to adult prisons have five times more likely to be sexually assaulted in adult prisons. Um, and many children prosecuted as adu- as adults um, suffer from mental health issues um, and mental Ill- illness. Um, and the practice of uh, prosecuting children under the age of, I believe the practice of prosecuting children under the age of 14 as adults should be eliminated. Um, and that's something that they've been advocating for, um, something that's been in- introduced and being reformed. But yeah, that's just one thing um, that scholars research and I think the general public need to advocate is the elimination of sending young children to adult prisons. Um, yes. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick minute break, but stick around. Um, the next part of this podcast is going to be talking about the interviews I had with two teachers at Santa Maria High who just had some really good uh, knowledge and background, but they also proposed some solutions on how to dismantle the school to prison pipeline. Um, so stick around. You won't want to miss this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that song. That song is called Ooh Child by the Star Stripes. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. So if you like it, highly recommend looking it up. You can download it on Spotify. Um, so in this section, we're going to discuss the interviews that I had for this project. I had the privilege of interviewing two teachers at Santa Maria High, I would say two former educators of mine who I had the privilege of having um, as a student. Um, one of them is Ricardo Valencia, who has been teaching um, 
for nine years at Santa Maria High. He's a Santa Maria native, um, born and raised there. And one of my questions in the beginning of the interview, I asked him is why did he go into education? And he shared to me the story when he was a sophomore in high school. He he went to a youth empowerment conference at UCSB um, that was tailored towards Latino students and encouraged them to go to college. And he said at that conference, they taught they taught him that so few Latinos um, go into higher education and connected it with race. There was a lot of discrimination against Latinos. There still is. Um, and he said that we often get teachers that are unqualified. We live in communities that don't fund schools through property tax the way they should. Um, sometimes um, certain teachers come with certain biases that underestimate the uh, Latinos' potential, potential and have lower expectations of students of color. And he, one thing he, sh- he shared to me is that he said when he was at the conference, it's, they told him if he, um, one day if he became a teacher, he could help to create the next generation of students. And it struck a chord to him. He said, if I could be a teacher, I could help create engineers, doctors, and lawyers, and teachers. That's why I wanted to become a teacher. I wanted my community to come up. I wanted my community to live a life of dignity and wealth and continue the struggle that led me here. I'm a teacher because people of color, allies, came together to fight for me to get a, a quality education. Um, that's was Mr. Valencia's response. And we discussed this, too. Um, that the doors to college were were locked for so many African Americans, so many Latinos, um, for people of color, for women of color as well. And knowing this, uh, we both share that we feel a sense of responsibility to contribute, to give back, and to fight for the quality of a good e- education for so many people of color. Um, and I asked him, um, since I'm a Santa Maria native too, I asked him, what was it like growing up in Santa Maria? Um, what resources um, did they have to help you succeed? And Mr. Valencia shared that he was an, an AVID student at Santa Maria High. Um, AVID is a program that believes in um, the potential of working class um, students to have the resources to go off to college um, straight out of high school. So. Mr. Valencia shared that he was college groom and college ready, um, but he wasn't the average student at Santa Maria High School. Um, he said out of all students, only 3% at the time of the student population had access to higher education. So now he's a teacher. I would say he's a great teacher. He's one of um, the best teachers I ever had a chance um, to work with, to be educated um, by. And I, uh, yeah, I remember asking him, how has education, how has the education system failed students? Um, and his response was that he has, during his time teaching, he has seen teachers who come in and teach at communities of color and come with defi- uh, deficit perspectives. So they will look, he said he would hear some of his colleagues say, these kids are unmotivated or it must be their parents or these kids don't have the potential or these kids are just empty containers to fill up with knowledge and one thing that that does to a student is it teachers will often put blame on a student on why they're not successful and as opposed to looking at their own practices and a lot and analyzing the fact that um, there are mostly white middle-class teachers who teach it in predominantly low-class Latino neighborhoods and come with certain biases and assumptions of who they are and oftentimes they're extremely inaccurate. In the paper I wrote for my senior project, there was certain research that shows that 
um, white, Caucasian, Anglo um, teachers who would teach in communities of color and carry negative stereotypes of students often lead to students' marginalizations, student um, learning outcomes, and um, alter students' life choices. And I asked them what um, what teachers can do better. Um, and he said, uh, teachers can do better by improving our game, our own game, us learning to become better teachers. Um, he said in his districts, teachers have the choice of whether they go to certain trainings or not. And eight out of 10 um, teachers chose not to go in his districts. And these are trainings like a, a, um, going to restorative justice approaches, learning how to um, interact and find alternative ways to approach a student's behavior who is acting out instead of suspending them, expelling them, and kicking and pushing them out of the education system. And he said another part of the, the problem um, is that teachers need to uh, reflect on their own privilege of what does it mean to be a white uh, middle-class teacher um, working in communities of color. Um, sometimes teachers will come in with the uh, white savior model and they would comment on students' behavior before they ever talk about the intelligence of students. Um, so that's something that, that Mr. Valencia has, has shared is that teachers need to um, approach restorative justice um, to, and implement them in their classrooms instead of adopting these zero tolerance policies that failed so many students in the 1980s and 90s, even to th today. And I would say um, reflecting on what white privilege is and having a cultural understanding of communities of colors and looking at their strengths and potentials and what students of color can bring to the education system. And definitely, it's definitely a perspective mindset that needs to be talked about in our education system, especially here in the Central Coast. Um, yeah. All right, next interview we're going to talk about is in the interview I had with Jeff Cooper. Um, unfortunately, um, all the re uh, all the interviews I had were recording, so they're not um, going to be um, pa uh, paced on this uh, podcast um, because I'm not that tech savvy. So instead, I'm just going to talk about what we talked about. Um, and I asked him, too, very similar questions I asked uh, Mr. Valencia is, what was it like to grow up in Santa Maria? And this was Jeff Cooper's response that he got in trouble often. Um, there was a just a number of arrested. There was a number of times that he's been arrested as a teen, um, and he didn't have any support system other than his mom. But because his mom came from a work, um, working class and only graduated um, high school, she didn't know how to add, uh, navigate the system for him to go off to college. He said no one talked to him about college, and. Uh, Mr. Cooper shared to me a time when he was a, a student in high school and a counselor told him that not all, not all people are, are meant to go to college. And that really just uh, uh, was hard for Mr. Cooper to accept. He actually decided to, he was going to work really hard to go off to college. Um, and yeah, he put himself through school, he earned his credential. And um I, one of the questions I asked him too is, how have you seen students being punished or heavily surveillance um, that kicks uh, students out of the edu education system now that he's been teaching for over uh, 
30, 30 to 35 years, or I would say more. Um, and um, I love Mr. Cooper because he is a fascinating storyteller. And he was telling a time when he first got his teacher credential that he was working for a program called Recap. And it was a program that taught students who got kicked out of the public school for bringing weapons or firearms. Um, he told me that the students that he worked with did not care and they felt discouraged because they felt they could never catch, uh, catch up or graduate on time. And I love Mr. Cooper's response because he said, um, we had to teach students how to care about themselves first. We have to teach students how to have a sense of belonging, how to show love, how to give a compliment. Uh, we had to show them how to love themselves before they can start learning in schools. So once we get students to a point where we, they can, they're, they're caring about themselves, that's when they're interested in the future. That's when the learning process begins. Man, I love that because I think so many schools don't do that enough where they um, invest in the students' well-being um, before um, trying to pressure them into learning all these standard tests. Um, so I love that, that uh, we talked about it. Um, he's also shared to me a time where he's seen a student expelled for dogging which is looking at someone very vicious. And he was in, uh, he intimidated enough teachers um, that teachers didn't want to deal with him. And uh, I, I think one of the last questions I asked him what, what teachers can do better. And his response was that teachers need to accept failure as part of a student's learning process. I don't think we do that enough in our education system where a student fails, we are quick to jump to the assumptions that they're dumb, that um, they can't learn as well as the other groups, especially for students of color, where I think that's just general in life that we learn by making mistakes, by uh, learning from our failures. But unfortunately, um, for people who live in marginalized and disfranchised communities, there is very little room to make mistakes because it could cost them, um, yeah, there was tremendous consequences if we made a mistake, such as like not going to school or talking back to teachers, that we would actually be sent to uh, law enforcement, um, to juvenile uh, court systems, um, to being at risk of falling to the school to prison pipeline. So um, I definitely agree with his solutions that we need to accept um, failures as a part of a uh, learning process in communities of color. Um, and at the end of the, the end of the interview, uh, Mr. Cooper uh, took me outside and he showed me a, a plant that he's uh, planting and I asked him why is he planting this, uh, why is he planting a garden in the school that he's teaching? And his response was, I'm teaching this, which was how to plant gardens because I'm teaching students to eat better. Um, he's, he said when students don't have enough iron, magnesium, or potassium, students will not be in the right frame of mind. Um, and the brain, when the brain is hungry, it operates on starvation. And when the brain starves, um, it doesn't operate the certain part where the brain allows students to think and learn. Um, so I thought that was a fascinating idea that he brought is that, wow, like while planting a garden, we're actually teaching um, the culture of the way we eat, both in schools and out of schools. 
Um, and it's just not about agriculture. It's about more just self-care. Is that we need to teach our students how to self, uh, how to take care, better care of themselves. Um, he also said that the student, the, the state of California is mandating that expense, ex, suspension and expulsion rates be reduced by one, uh, by one of the indicators of success. Um, so the state of California has provided alternative approaches. Um, and what we've done is, is training teachers not to send a student when they act out. And it's fascinating too, because he said when a student act out, acts out, you either you pull them aside and ask them what's what's wrong. And nine times out of 10, when you ask a question like that, it's kind of a, a student's asking, a student's crying for help, where many of them don't know how to, um, I would say in communities where high crime rate, where a student's suffering from trauma, many students don't know how to talk about their problems. And that's part of, under, of learning how to be a healthy adult is talking about emotions. Um, because there's a certain part of the brain that doesn't experience pain. And the way students sometimes show that is by acting out. But, man, in the past, especially in the 1980s and 1990s, um, when a child acts out, we just punish them, punish them and we criminalize them for showing pain. Um, because we discussed that the brain doesn't have sensors. So when students are suffering from malnutrition, they're acting on fight or flight, um, and basically, their um, students' brains who are suffering from malnutrition are a- acting on adrenaline. So, um, oftentimes, students are diagnosed with ADHD, but matter of fact, it's a nutritional issue. Again, in my paper, we talked about that we're so quick to jump when a student's acting out that we label it as a behavioral issue instead of a mental health issue, instead of a nutritional issue. Um, and he proposed... When you change the diet, uh, Mr. Cooper proposed when you change the diet of a child, you change their behavior. So, um, Mr. Cooper asked me at the end of the interview, he asked me if I would like to know the percentage of our students who are low on magnesium, iron, and potassium. And my response was like, what is it? And he said that it's estimated is 40% of American youth suffer from malnutrition and suffer from low levels of iron, magnesium, and potassium. And I asked him, where did you learn this from? So Ms. Cooper learned this from Dr. Romero Marliallo, who works in the prison systems. Um, So this um, diet nutritionist, he helps change the the diets of inmates inside California's prisons. And he said that 40% of the U.S. population in, uh, of children in America are suffering from iron deficiency, and it leads to certain types of behavior. So, I thought that was fascinating that we are changing California's um, inmates' um, diets, but we're not changing California public schools' diets. Um, and I think that's a a good way, um, a solution that needs to be implemented in our um, public school systems here in California, but also in in other states across the country as well. Um, So, uh, yeah, like, I I think we need to treat um, students' behavior as a mental health issue, as a nutritionist issue. We need to approach it with love, with, with compassion, with kindness, instead of criminalizing them instead of jumping to assumptions. But we also need to change um, the way we teach students how to eat as well. 
Um, I thought that was a great solution that he brought up, and it's definitely one one small way of just tackling the school to prison pipeline where we can actually send students to college instead of prisons. I love those interviews, very just, I think, enlightened, very uh, filled with hope for the future and for young people. And I think that's something we as a state and we as a nation need to do is invest more in education, build more schools and prisons, um, but in, invest in the well-beings of students, um, provide um, restorative justice approaches, um, but also change the diets uh, of, of students in our school districts. Um, and some states are moving towards that, towards finding alternative ways. Um, one way, for example, is California an, uh, has ended adult prosecutions for, for young teens. Um, there was Calif- uh, California Senator Holly Mitchell from the Los Angeles district introduced uh, Senate Bill uh, 1391. Um, and this bill, what this bill actually prohibits the prosecution of 14 and 15 year olds um, at being prosecuted as adults. There was, also, there was also a paper by the Sacramento Bee that reported in 2015, 874 cases involving children under uh, 12 were referred to the uh, California Juvenile Hall court system for crimes such as curfew, a violation, truancy, vandalism, theft, trespassing, assault and battery, and robbery. Um, and this was according to a UCLA a- uh, analyst, uh, uh, State Justice Department data. So this bill will actually uh, refer student, uh, students and youth to the parents and provide uh, social services instead of um, putting them through the juvenile hall court system. Um, so, man, those are just some things that I think we need to move. And um, California is actually leading in that approach. Um, the state of California ended um, the death penalty um, just a couple months ago. But one thing that I think that still needs to be proposed that and California's done that as well is end the um the elimination of sending and prosecuting children to adult prisons for non homicide and non uh injury courses. I think we need also reduce the the prison penalty as well for mandatory sentencing. Um we need to implement restorative justice across all schools um in the country. And we need to approach um teaching um, and areas of behavior and, and discipline with compassion and empathy instead of, instead of criminalizing young people. So, yeah, we have a, just a lot of work to do, but I think researching this project, finding alternative ways, interviewing educators who are doing different approaches and investing in students and students of color to um, have access to higher education, to receive a quality education and to buy to provide a safety uh, space for children to um, grow and to um, and to flourish, man, it's gonna take all of us. And I definitely believe in that the African proverb, proverb that it takes a village to raise a child. So, yeah, uh, I think communities need to be invested in, in the well beings of, of children. I think pol- um, policymakers and politicians need to consider um, how to invest in in the future of a child. I think teachers are at the front line um, and, and college students uh, need to provide um, better ways of, of teaching for students who are going to become teachers in the future. So 
thank you for the time for listening. It's been a joy doing this project. I hope you enjoyed it as much as um, I did. Um, and yeah, um, hope this can bring more awareness to people. Thank you so much.